Hey everyone, it's Mike Doherty. We'll have a new Deeper Dig podcast up on Friday. But for now, we wanted to share an interview we thought you might enjoy. David Sanger is a national security correspondent for the New York Times. And he sat down with our editor, Anne Galloway, last weekend at the Manchester Community Library for a live conversation. They talked about cybersecurity and the 2020 election, the state of local journalism, and lots more. Before we get into it, a huge thanks to GNAT TV for recording the program and making it available. You can find more of their programming at gnat-tv.org. Anne Galloway takes it from here. Thank you all so much for coming tonight. Um, I'm grateful that you all were able to step away from the garden, as Kevin said, and uh, join us this evening for a special talk with David Sanger. And I briefly want to introduce David, um, who many of you probably know because he's lived uh, part-time for many many years in Weston uh, nearby. And um, David is the chief Washington correspondent for the New York Times, and he's the lead national security reporter uh, for the Times and really for the nation. He's uh, won at least three Pulitzer Prizes, maybe a fourth, I'm not sure, <laughs> with teams at the Times, okay. And um, he's the former uh, bureau chief in Japan, and um, he's uh, um, now in mostly in D.C., but he travels the world. And we're very lucky to have him tonight because, as you may know, we've had a lot of recent news um, about Iran and Saudi Arabia and um, and so we're going to learn a lot tonight um, about um, what's happening in the news right now and uh, David's perspective on gathering the news for all of us. So without further ado, please welcome David Sanger. Well, thank you very much, uh, Anne. It's great. And thanks to all of you for coming here. Uh, for us, um, Manchester's the big city because we're in, we're in Weston. So, you know, if I feel like I'm like looking around at tall buildings and stuff, that's what's going on. Um, but I just wanted to say, um, briefly just something about VT Digger because when I get up, uh, in the morning, uh, you know, I've got, I turn on my computer and I've got my little apps there for it. So I've, of course, got the New York Times, though if I don't know what's in the Times by come the morning, I probably shouldn't be working there. And, um, and I, I look, of course, at the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times and the, uh, usually the Yomiuri Shimbun, because I used to live in, in Japan, or the Asahi Shimbun, and you know, maybe the South China Morning News, and then VT Digger. Right there, because if I don't read VT Digger, I'm not knowing what's happening up in my other state, and actually my only state because I live in DC. Um, so, um, and uh, uh, I actually think what you guys have done is remarkable because we're in a world of declining local news. Um, I don't worry about the big national news organizations. I worry about some of them, but. You know, between the Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the now revived LA Times, uh, if Donald Trump's acting out or Congress is acting out, we're on it. But I worry about states and cities and small towns because that's where we have seen journalism hollowed out. 
And the whole idea that you are now running the biggest newsroom in Vermont is just fabulous. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you, David. I'm, I'm honored that you read us. Um, thank you. That means a lot to me. It, it's hard to believe that it's been uh, a decade since I started Digger. And um, so I'm, I'm pleased that we're still here and we hope to be around for another 10 years. So um, thank you again. So, um, you know, Vermont's been here for, you know, 300. And if Vermont goes off and cre- it secedes from the country the way it once was, you could be the only national newspaper. So, you know. <laughs> well, I, I always wanted to report in a foreign country. Yeah, so. there you go. <laughs> There's my that, you, that means that you go over to New Hampshire frequently. Is that it? <laughs> oh, no kidding. <laughs> that is a foreign country. Yeah. <laughs> We certainly think so in Weston, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, could you catch us up on the news? I know that we've all been reading <laughs> the real news out there in the big world. Um, what's, what's new with the investigation into the strikes on refineries in Saudi Arabia? And um, it wasn't a drone attack, right? And how do we know that? So um, we think it had drones and it had missiles uh, combined in it. Um, we think they came from the north, uh, which would might explain why the Saudis didn't see it, because all their air defenses are geared toward the south. Um, I wouldn't want to be the director of air defense in Saudi Arabia this week. This does not sound to me like to be a, like a healthy job title to, to hold on to right now because it's a huge humiliation to them. I mean, if you're going to strike Saudi Arabia and you want to strike Saudi Arabia where it would hurt, of course you're going to go after the oil fields, right? I mean, this doesn't require like a whole lot of deep thought. So the idea that these were um, underprotected is really remarkable. Um, what we don't know, uh, we suspect based on the that when this is all, when all the forensics have been done on the technology, that the technology is going to look pretty Iranian. But that doesn't mean that Iranian hands were involved in the launch. Could have been proxies, could have been others. And it's interesting, we don't really know for certain that it was launched from Iranian territory. And while the day after the launch, the attack happened a week ago today, and uh, I was at a conference outside of New York last weekend, and we were first getting the reports of this, and Secretary Pompeo came out on Sunday morning last week and said Iran was responsible. I mean, right away, based on intelligence he had seen. Interestingly, Donald Trump has not repeated that claim. Now, I realize we all recognize he's highly restrained usually in what he says on uh, (laughs) Twitter and so forth, but um, he has not made that claim, and the Defense Department has said it is still under study. So I think there's there's a little bit of hedging going on out here that we're trying to get to the bottom of. Um, So tomorrow morning should be interesting because... um, uh, 
Foreign Minister Zarif, the Iranian foreign minister who has been maintaining Iran had nothing to do with this, just landed in New York today. He just taped an appearance on Face the Nation tomorrow. I just was reading the transcript as we were coming over here. Um, Secretary Pompeo is going to be on the same show, although not at the same moment with him. So I think we're going to get two very different pictures tomorrow of what this look like. And Zarif's going to be in New York all week for uh, the UN General Assembly, and uh, President Rouhani is coming. So we're in for a wild week of this in which you're going to have President Trump and Mike Pompeo and Rouhani and Zarif within um, yards of each other, uh, but not probably talking to each other as we try to figure out what to do. Um, one thing that is rather interesting is that I don't detect any interest on the part of the Pentagon or the White House in having the U.S. conduct a kinetic strike inside Iranian territory. And that's probably good news. I mean, number one, this is the Saudis' problem, and they're not a treaty ally. They are an ally. Um, so then the question is, what's the right response? Because if the United States comes to the conclusion it was really Iran that did this, it's clearly an act of war. If anybody had wiped out half of our oil fields, we'd probably be a little bit annoyed, right? Um, but um, is the answer more sanctions? Hard to imagine what we've left unsanctioned in Iran. I'm sure there's somebody this weekend running around the basement of the Treasury trying to figure out what what's left to sanction in Iran. Um, uh, is the answer beefing up the military presence there? Well, that clearly is going to happen. Uh, is the answer a cyber response? Uh, I deal with that a lot in The Perfect Weapon, and we can get to that later on. If I had to guess out of those three, it's option three, that you will see cyber used by the Saudis, by us, more likely by us, because the Saudis are almost as good at cyber as they are at air defense. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> um, so you've written a book about cyber warfare to carry, carry uh, this forward, a perfect weapon. And uh, how could you envision um, the, the Saudis or us using cyber warfare against Iran? We've done that before, right? So how would we do it again in this... Well, by my count, we've done three significant cyber strikes in the past decade on Iran. And um, Iran has sort of been the poster child for how the United States experiments with the use of cyber conflict. And, and you use the phrase cyber warfare. And in fact, cyber hasn't yet been used in a war by us or anybody else. But it has been used in short-of-war operations, and that's the key to what makes cyber such an interesting, um, uh, such an interesting weapon, because it can be calibrated very finely in a way that nuclear weapons really cannot. I mean, you drop a nuclear weapon, you're kind of on an on and off switch. You can adjust the size a little bit, but you're not going to hide it, and you're not going to make it highly targeted, probably. But 
For cyber, you can dial it up or dial it down. You can decide you're going to hit an electric grid. You can decide you're going to expose uh, the Democratic National Committee's um, databases in a different kind of cyber attack. You may decide that you are going to try to disable nuclear centrifuges, which was our first big attack on Iran, Olympic Games, which uh, I revealed elements of in a previous book called Confront and Conceal, and then this book opened sort of where that left off. Um, but then we've gone after Iran's missile program to try to screw up their um, missile launches. And on June 20th, right after that American drone was shot down, the Iranians went to turn on their database of shipping in the Gulf, which from which um, they would pick their targets for the Iranian military. And they discovered they no longer had a database of shipping in the Gulf. Funny that. Um, uh, an interesting and subtle use of cyber. Um, in the next few days in the Times, you'll probably be write, reading a little bit about what lessons we can draw from these kinds of attacks. It's a fascinating arena because largely it's covert. It's got more secrecy around our cyber arsenal than we wrapped around our nuclear arsenal in the 50s and 60s and 70s. We've never had a public debate in the United States about how we want to be using this arsenal, or even if we want to be using it. We had that in nuclear, right? We, in the 50s and 60s, you know, MacArthur wanted to use it in the Korean War, wanted to use nuclear weapons. We now know that the American commander in Vietnam wanted to have nuclear weapons uh, available if they lost at Khe Song and they needed to go use them there. And by the 80s, we had pretty much decided, now we're not going to use nuclear weapons as an ordinary weapon of war. We're just going to hold on to it for national survival. We've made the opposite decision with cyber. We have decided that it is so useful that like the drone, it will be used all the time. But we don't really have a real sense yet of how we're going to use it, what theory is it working under, whether it's actually a useful deterrent. So we have a lot to learn in that territory. Well, who's in control in state in the federal government of these programs? And does Congress have a clue? Um, well, we could ask the does Congress have a clue question <laughs> over a number of different arenas. That could take us much of the evening. Um, so cyber is controlled by offensive cyber operations are controlled largely by two major organizations. The National Security Agency, which started in the world of listening in on telecommunications around the world and all that, started in 1952. But as the digital age came upon us, began looking at cyber as a new means of surveillance and then began looking at it as a new form of weaponry as all states have, the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, the North Koreans, which gives you a sense of why this has spread so widely, because if the North Koreans have figured out how to go use this as a weapon, you have to say that just about everybody can use this as a weapon, right? Um, but then within the U.S. military, we have a newly elevated United States Cyber Command. It now is of a level 
equal to Central Command, which operates in the Middle East, Northern Command, which defends the United States, Pacific Command, which obviously deals with the Indo-Pacific arena. So there is a full military structure. It's based at Fort Meade, just outside the Baltimore-Washington International Airport, right next to um, the NSA, because they are highly dependent on the NSA. The oversight for this comes partly from the Armed Services Committee, which oversees Cyber Command, and partly from the Intelligence Committees, who oversee the NSA. But I wouldn't say that there are more than 15 to two dozen members of Congress who have a really deep appreciation of what's involved in cyber strategy. That's kind of shocking. You know, it's funny. It's not only is it shocking, but you get this sort of strange excuse from members of Congress, even to this day, where they say, oh, this digital stuff, it's so complicated. When I'm trying to understand you know, how cyber is used. I go to my 14-year-old daughter, and it sounds, you know, adorable and a great thing to say out on the campaign. And you sort of want to shake people and say, during the height of the Cold War, would it have been acceptable for a member of Congress to say, oh, these nuclear weapons, it involves fission and fusion, and, you know, I go check with my, my teenage son about how this is working? I don't think that would have worked during the Cold War. So what about the location? I mean, we're talking about Fort Meade outside Baltimore. And the city of Baltimore has recently been the victim of a kind of cyber attack. and A ransomware attack. Yeah. Um, So it's fascinating because we did the reporting on the ransomware attack in Baltimore, which came after the ransomware attack on Atlanta, but before the ransomware attacks on these dozen or so towns across Texas this summer, um, we discovered that among those who were feeling the um, victim side of this were many NSA employees who live around Baltimore, as you would expect. Um, So the ransomware attacks we have seen so far are largely not, as far as we can tell, the action of states. They could be in the future, but mostly they're the act, they're basically criminal actions. You lock up somebody's data and then you say, pay me five bitcoins, uh, you know, which are untraceable to unlock your data. And what's interesting is some cities and towns have come to the conclusion that they would pay the ransom because they have been advised it is cheaper than trying to go solve the problem. Now, Baltimore followed the FBI advice, which is don't pay ransoms, period. And so far, they've spent about $18 million, and they're just now sort of creeping back to getting their data back. Um, So the FBI gave bad advice? Well, the FBI gave the right theoretical advice, which is if you pay this stuff, there's just going to be more ransomware, but maybe not the most economical advice. Now, Ransomware is a problem, and I think there are some possible solutions I won't bore you with today. Um, But think ahead to 2020 and the utility of ransomware as a technique. So 
we're getting near election day and um, you come down to vote in Manchester and you discover that for some portion of Vermont, maybe localities, maybe the whole state, the registration system, which is forward, which is outward facing and connected to the computers, to computer networks and to the internet, unlike voting machines, which are largely not, um, you discover that it's been locked up by ransomware. Okay, and think of this around the country. So my friend Wayne here shows up and they say, Wayne, Wayne says, I'm ready to vote. And they say, um, gee, um, we can't get at your registration because it's been locked up. Or when we look at the registration, somebody's manipulated the data and it looks like Wayne had moved to Arizona, which would make all of us in Weston very sad. Um, you can imagine the amount of mischief that you could go do here. And so there is a quiet but quite active effort underway by the Department of Homeland Security, which is um, responsible for cyber defense inside the U.S. short of large military activity, to try to make sure that states are ready for this. And as you can imagine, some states are highly sophisticated at it and doing a pretty good job. And some states don't have a clue. And some states are broke, and even if they have a clue, they don't have the money to go fix it. So I think you're going to see a big effort by 2020 to get every municipality, every town, in the days before the election, to print out their registration rolls so that you've got a paper backup, which takes you to the key for some critical effort elements of a democracy like voting, which is there are some things in the world that are just too important to devote to digital media alone. And you always want to have a paper backup. And yeah. election machines are, are one of those. So you think we should have paper ballots in addition to having the printed registrations at every... I think you need to have paper backup for it. So when I go to vote in D.C., I vote on an electric, you know, electronic kind of voting machine where you use a pen to go mark these things. But then there is a printout that comes out from this. And uh, you want to check that over, make sure that's right, and make sure that's in some place with you. Now, we've seen a number of different really interesting efforts since 2016 that are some of which are being given to states by free. Microsoft's worked out one. Uh, there's a fascinating digital democracy project at Harvard that uh, has been doing some of this. There are several others where the effort is to make sure that you can track that your vote got registered and counted. So in other words, essentially, when you go in to vote, you're given a unique number, kind of like the number you're given when you make an airplane reservation, right? And that you can, even if it doesn't indicate how you voted, that you can track that as an audit trail through the system to make sure that you have a timestamp for when that got registered, when it got counted, 
when the ballots physically moved and so forth. We managed to do this for every FedEx package that they leave on my front doorstep, you know, in Weston. So how hard can it be for a ballot system? Yeah. So do you think we'll get our act together to make all that happen before the, the next I think election? in some states you will. Some places mm-hmm. like New Jersey worry me because they're broke and they understand what their problem is, but they don't have the money to go solve it. Mm. Um, there are about, there were 12 or 13 states um, in the U.S. that had no paper backup in 2016. Mm. I think that number is being whittled down, but will not be zero by 2020. Mm. There are some states that have partial paper backup, mm-hmm. uh, including Pennsylvania and Georgia. Mm. Um, and uh, so you want to make sure that's the case. But then there's something else to think about, which is the history of cyber attacks tells you that people move up the learning curve really fast. We did Stuxnet, the attack on the Iranian um, system, and people found the Stuxnet code and they improved it and used it for other attacks. So the thing to remember about 2020 is the rest of the world was learning from the Russians. And the problem next year may not be Russia, it may be China, it may be Iran, which was poking around in the midterm elections, not with much effect, but they were poking around. And the second thing to know is that the Russians weren't born yesterday. So um, they're not going to run the same playbook in 2020 that they ran in 2016. Because, you know, Facebook's waiting for them and Twitter's waiting for them and hopefully some of the cities and towns are waiting for them and the FBI's waiting for them. So they're going to come up with new methods. Um, there's a section in the uh, Perfect Weapon, um, a chapter uh, about Ukraine, and the chapter's name is Putin's Petri Dish. <laughs> and the reason is that every single thing that the Russians did to us in 2016, they practiced in Ukraine in the Ukraine elections in the years running up to it. And we were so out to lunch that, you know, at least the Saudis have an air defense system. We had no electoral defense system, and we weren't, we didn't have the imagination to think that what the Russians were doing in Ukraine, they would dare to bring to us. So how are we staying out of the curve, or are we? I mean, if... It's a great question. So um, I was just at... Last week, I was speaking at a conference in D.C. that was run in part by the Department of Homeland Security. And uh, I have to say I'm impressed with the quality of thinking going on at DHS, at FBI, at NSA, and so forth about this problem. So what's missing? What's missing is any central coordination of this at the White House. And it's missing because President Trump doesn't want to hear about Russian interference, because first of all, it's a hoax, as you probably heard um, uh, in his mind. But secondly, I think he believes that any discussion of this as a problem to go deal with is an acknowledgement that there was some set of deficiencies in the 2016 election, and it makes him feel as if people are trying to delegitimize his election, which I'm not. I mean, I actually think... Had the Russians not interfered, I'm not at all certain that the election would have come out in any different way. 
And there are people who disagree. Jim Clapper, the former director of national intelligence, argues that since it really turned on 77,000 votes in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, uh, I'm sorry, in Ohio, um, that uh, there's no way, uh, uh, Michigan, you're right, um, that uh, uh, that uh, there's no way they could not have had a significant effect. Um, I'm not sure that we'll ever be able to prove that. Hmm. So if the president isn't interested, what is the bureaucracy doing? So the bureaucracy is working hard on it, but as I mentioned before, the states are out of money for this, and most of the towns are. And the reason for that is pretty clear. You use your election machines once a year at most, and sometimes once every two years. And if you've got pressure to go fill potholes and put money into the schools and all that, pouring a lot of money into a system that you're going to use one day out of 365 is a hard case to make. And almost all of the money that Congress already allocated, and it wasn't very much for this problem, has already been spent. And uh, Mitch McConnell has been uninterested in moving forward with a bunch of new bills to go enable more money for this problem. Uh, and the White House has not exactly been pressing for it. Um, we wrote some interesting stories um, after the former uh, head of DHS um, lost her job. And um, she had been trying to um, put together some high-level meetings within the National Security Council and at the White House uh, on this issue. And she was told by uh, Mick Mulvaney, the uh, acting uh, White House chief of staff, not to go raise this at the White House or in front of the president because of the reasons I just gave you. So he basically said, it's legitimate work. Go off and do it. Do whatever you need to do, but just keep it out of, out of here. Well, we all know how government works, which is you only get the bureaucracy in train when the top leadership makes it clear it's a number one priority. And if you ask the president, do you want the Department of Homeland Security building your wall or focusing on election security for 2020, I think you know what the answer is going to be. Well, that's just not depressing enough. I have to ask another question. <laughs> hey, listen, even VT Digger isn't all smiles every morning. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> uh, so um, you open your book with this horrifying description of what happens in the Ukraine when um, the Russians shut down the power grid. And, you know, we've heard that this could happen in this country. How likely is that to happen? And what other ways could um, national, uh, international actors harm our economy and our, our way of life through cyber attacks? So you've all read that the Russians are deep inside um, our power grid uh, with malware. And they are. And we all think this is an outrage. Except for the fact that, as my colleague uh, Nicole Perworth and I reported uh, in um, May, 
one of the things U.S. Cyber Command has done is go deep inside the Russian power grid as an effort to try to create some sense of deterrent here. Now, we're not entirely sure this will work. And by the way, after we published that story, the night we published that, it was a Sunday story, so we published it on Saturday evening, and uh, I was sitting at dinner with some friends, and um, I got a call from the office that said, you might want to look at your Twitter feed. And I said, it's a Saturday night. I really don't want to look at my Twitter feed. And I said, well, the president just called you guys treasonous. <laughs> and indeed, he had turned out this tweet that said the New York Times story is treasonous. That was sort of interesting. Um, and then I think about 25 or 30 minutes later, he must have recognized that in putting out the tweet, he appeared to be confirming the story. <laughs> you've, you've had this happen at VT Digger, I'm sure. Once uh, or twice. <laughs> and um, so he turned out another tweet that said, and it's wrong. <laughs> so I said to my friends at the National Security Council on Monday morning, you know, you guys got to really make a choice. Either we're treasonous, in which case I'm sure you're referring it to the Justice Department, or we're wrong, in which case it's not treasonous, because if it's wrong, how could it be treasonous? Will you guys let me know how you sort this out? And we're still waiting. <laughs> uh, but to your more serious point, so part of cyber is a mind game, which is to say, to get into a power grid so that you know that if you do too much to someone else, they could turn off your lights. Part of what you saw happen in the election campaign was a mind game. You don't actually need to change votes. All you need to do is make people question the veracity of the system, the reliability of the system. So if I was wanted to go do a cyber attack that would make people question the 2020 election, I might not go anywhere near the election machines at all. If you could just turn out the power in key districts around the country, and I'm not advocating anybody, try the, do not try this at home, as they say, um, you could create a lot of doubt about the reliability of the election. And of course, presidential elections are the only elections where the Constitution says what day it's got to happen, right? Um, so, I'm sorry? It says it's on the same day for all the states. That's right. Congress decides that. That's right. But the same day is critical because if you had power outages in some parts of it and the states were then saying, no, 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 we got to turn the power on and run the election tomorrow, You've got a problem. That's right. Whereas with a state or a local election, if you had a hurricane, we had one of these here, right? You had some other event. And there were local elections happening in New York on 9-11, right? They re-ran the election later on. You would have a really hard time doing that with a presidential election. So... All you need to do in a cyber attack is create a sense of panic and vulnerability. And that's what worries me about the, electro, the, the um, electric grid. There's one other element of this that we need to think about, which is trying to figure out 
in this new age where we can all exact revenge against each other using cyber and where you don't need to be a superpower to do it, um, what is it that we need to do to begin to set some common set of understandings or rules about what's off limits? So, and if you and I were to go do this uh, over lunch one day, we'd probably make a little list on a piece of paper and say, okay, the electric grid should be off limits because when you turn off the power, it's the most vulnerable people in society who are hurt, people who are in nursing homes or hospitals or shut into their houses. Um, election systems. After the past two years, we'd probably all sign up to that. Um, emergency communications. You wouldn't want that to be subject. We could go on with our list. Now imagine for a minute that you're about to go negotiate this with the Chinese and the Russians, and you go down to the Situation Room and you're the Secretary of State, and you say, you know, we're just about to go open negotiations with the Russians on this. I think our intelligence community would say, wait a minute. Electrical grid? We had a secret program, not so secret anymore, you'll read about it in The Perfect Weapon, called Nitro Zeus, to turn off all the power in Iran if we got into a big conflict with Iran, on the theory that you could make the country collapse without firing a shot. Might be the more humane way to go. Election systems? Supposing the president wanted to go mess with a foreign election to keep a Maduro-like figure from taking power. Wouldn't that be better than getting into a conflict? Emergency communications? Well, what's the first thing we do when we're in a big conflict with the Chinese or the North Koreans or the Iranians or whatever? We would cut off the communications inside the country so the leadership couldn't talk to the military forces. So I think one of the big objections to these kinds of codes of behavior, uh, what the head of Microsoft, Brad Smith, calls a digital Geneva Convention, might be us. Wow. Under any administration. This is not a rap on Donald Trump. I think that this would be a hard case in the Democratic administration. It would, you know, If this was so easy to do, Barack Obama would have tried to go do it. And they talked about it, but they got nowhere. Mm, boy. So they're not going to be taking this up next week at the UN, I take it. The UN actually has a panel of experts on cyber that meets periodically. And they did get to an initial set of agreements. And then it just got too dicey for the Chinese, the Russians, and the Americans. And it's sort of been frozen for the past three or four years. Hmm. So without the United States leading the way on this, you don't think we'll ever have a Geneva Convention on digital issues like this? We might. But remember that for the real Geneva Conventions, uh, at least those that came up out of First World War One and then World War Two, got and it's been amended many times. The instigator was not governments. The instigator was the Red Cross. And what's really interesting is that the lead on this has been taken by companies and NGOs to try to force governments to go sign up. And I think that's the way to go because if, you know, 85% of internet traffic in the United States is private sector traffic. So it would make sense that the beginning of this effort would begin 
with non-government efforts. And that might turn out to be the most effective way to go do it, because I think governments will freeze up. That's fascinating, because recently business stepped up on gun control, too. And look what happened when the president has tried to lower gas uh, efficiency standards, right? It's the car companies that turned around and said, we want to keep the older regulations in place because all of you want to have, you know, more efficient cars driving around. That's why when I drive around in Vermont, I see a lot of hybrid cars and a lot of Subarus. We (laughs) step out into the parking lot here, my guess is that the Subaru density would be higher than most of the country, okay? Um, I'm just guessing, looking at the crowd. Um, And uh, so there are moments when you could actually see businesses take the lead because they're reflecting what their buyers want. I often tell a story about um, uh, tuna fish. So, you know, once it became a problem that, that, that in catching tuna fish, we were catching a lot of other um, uh, sea life in the nets, um, suddenly you began to see those little symbols on the tuna fish cans that indicated that Flipper wasn't going to get stuck in the net. And, you know, kids would go down with their parents shopping for food and they would say, you know, does it have the symbol on the... uh, Right? That was not a government regulation. That's right. So this can be done. It Mm. can be done. Mm. Well, we're about... It's about 7.30 almost. And I'm very sensitive to keeping the time... Tight. We have some questions from the audience. That, oh, well, great! Actually, Terrific. reader reader questions from the. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. The, these are these are questions that were submitted to Digger, and then we'll take a few audience questions as well. Um, so, Jonathan Galloway, no relation to me, by the way, <laughs> from Burlington, asks: uh, I understand that we have secret plans to take over Greenland and Iceland in the event of war. <laughs> Is this true? First of all, I didn't know it was secret. I thought it was official. Well, clearly it's not secret anymore, (laughs) thanks to Jonathan. Um, I thought we were going to buy Greenland. I thought so, too. We're going to take it over, too? Uh, Look, the Pentagon's got plans for um, everything. I'm sure including um, taking over, invading Canada, if need be. And let's face it, guys, that operation's starting from Vermont, so just get ready for it, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that just because they've got the plan on the shelf, there would be much to it. Um, Greenland turned out to be strategically vital in World War II. And I do want to recall that before Donald Trump had the idea of buying Greenland, Harry Truman had the idea of buying Greenland. It didn't work then either, but it would have been a lot cheaper. Um, (laughs) um, So um, uh, it's not an entirely new idea. Uh, I'm not sure. uh, I mean, it wouldn't have added much population to the U.S., but it would have been a very expensive health care plan to take over, I think. (laughs) 
Uh, and, and I noticed a distinct absence of enthusiasm among those in Greenland who got, uh, who got, got interviewed on this, this topic. Um, but uh, I don't know of any plan to take over Greenland or Iceland. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks uh, why for is this that strategically question. important? Because as climate change happens and we begin to open up shipping routes through the Arctic, um, Greenland's going to look pretty important. Yeah. Svalbard, too, I guess. Um, uh, Kathleen Lieber of Belmont asks, um, I believe that one of the legacies of the Trump administration is the hollowing out of our federal agencies that serve and protect us. How would you estimate and describe the damage to national security, and what will it take to restore this function of government? How much danger are we in, really? So we've had two forms of hollowing out. It's a superb question. Um, one has been the sort of State Department style for hollowing out, which was that they literally stopped hiring young diplomats that just like the military brings a new class in every year in all of the big parts, so does the diplomatic corps, the Foreign Service. And uh, we just had Rex Tillerson speaking um, at the Kennedy School, where I, I teach national security with, uh, with Graham Allison. And uh, so last Tuesday, he came up, and um, he spent a lot of time discussing how, in his first few months in office, he was focused on what the roles and responsibility lines were within different parts of the State Department. And then if you were going to have to cut the budget from $55 billion to $35 billion, I think I have those numbers right, um, how you were going to have to stop hiring so that you didn't have to lay people off later on. In other words, that you would, right? And uh, that he spent m much of his time every day looking at waivers for those people he was going to have to go hire. So first question is, isn't this a problem for the assistant or deputy secretary of state for administration? And don't you want your secretary of state thinking about like a new China strategy or a new Russia strategy or something like that? Um, so I just found it fascinating that as you bring a very accomplished business executive, and he was an extremely accomplished business executive, he had run ExxonMobil, into the job, you know, there's this sort of immediate assumption in Washington, oh yeah, if we could just bring the efficiency of, of business to government, we'd be in great shape. And of course, all of the incentives, the goals are very different from what they are when you're out there to go protect the interests of shareholders. And by the way, you rarely hear the flip, which is, oh, he's been terrific in government all these years. I'm sure he could run ExxonMobil. <laughs> okay. um, You're right, I've never heard that. Yeah, and probably won't for some time. Um, but uh, so there's been a hollowing out there. They literally missed an entire year, year and a half of bringing in young diplomats. And that, that absent bubble is going to take place through our diplomatic corps for the next 45 years. Okay. Um, it'll get filled in. It was only a year and a half. Rex Tillerson didn't last very long, not because he was trying to cut the budget, but because he wasn't busy telling his boss that his ideas on Iran and so forth were fabulous. Um, 
But I, that's one form of hollowing out. We've seen that happen in a number of different places. International aid, right? Uh, which is already a pretty small part of the budget, but getting smaller all the time. You haven't seen that happen in the Defense Department, which has gotten all the money it's wanted without a big strategic rethink of how we want to spend this, which is why we're spending so much more money on weapon systems we haven't used since Vietnam and probably not enough on new technology, artificial intelligence, so forth and so on. The second hollowing out has been in the decision-making process, where the old processes that were running the National Security Council were basically ignored from the day that H.R. McMaster left and John Bolton came in. And one of the interesting questions about uh, Mr. O'Brien, the new National Security Advisor, is whether or not he's going to sort of restore that process of deputies, meetings, and all that. People get a little leery of that in a presidency like this because they fear that the deputies process is meant to go ratify something that the president just tweeted out rather than sort of bubble the policy up from the bottom. And I think the big question is, can you get the process back in place? And we'll be spending a lot of time covering that. Mm. Wow. So Richard Confrancesco of Springfield wants to know, why can't the press get tougher with questions to the occupier of the White House? Seems like they roll over and are afraid of losing press passes. Um, I haven't found a lot of people afraid of losing their press passes. First of all, if you're going to cover this White House, the last place you want to go do it from is from the inside of the press room. First of all, there aren't any briefings anymore. And secondly, when there were, they weren't exactly the most informative sessions you've ever sat through. And by the way, I would say the same thing about the Bush administration, and while the Obama administration was slightly better, only slightly in that regard. If I was White House correspondent for the Times for six years. The way you cover a White House is not by sitting there trying to go corner the press secretary, who probably doesn't know the most interesting things that are going on in that White House in any, in any case. You are reporting out around the edges of it. You're talking to foreign diplomats who have been talking to the White House. You are talking to members of Congress or staff members who have been talking to the White House. You're talking to business leaders who have been. So that when you go in to ask your question at the, at the White House, you already know the answer. Or you've got a pretty good indication that you know the answer. Because if you go to the White House, any White House, not just this White House, and say, um, tell me about your new China trade policy. Or if you go to the White House and say, I've just interviewed five different people who you've been talking to in the trade negotiations, and I understand that the proposal on the table is X, and that means Y for your broader policy, you're going to get a lot more interesting answer the second way. And, you know, this is not like a deep secret of White House reporting. It's a deep secret of Vermont State House reporting, you know. You don't go into these systems blind. And when I used to cover the White House, 
you know, you'd show up someplace, you'd be sitting on an airplane or away, somebody could come up to you and say, you cover the White House, do you go to those briefings every day? And your answer is, not if I can help it. <laughs> okay? Because it's the least efficient way to, under, and it's probably 5% of your day. I mean, we had a great White House team when I was um, White House correspondent, and we would pick straws for who would be stuck with the briefing that day. <laughs> Sounds like the way we handle press conferences with the governor. <laughs> no matter who's governor. <laughs> um, Don Hooper Brookfield, who's here tonight, uh, wants to know, if Donald Trump loses in 2020, do you expect that he will voluntarily leave office, or will he claim election fraud and refuse to leave? It's a really fascinating question. <laughs> Because you could argue that any of that kind of uh, disruption that I talked about earlier, ransomware attacks, power outages, whatever, the president could stand up and say, we didn't run a full and fair election. And he might be right. Um, and that could touch off a pretty big constitutional crisis. Now, we've gotten through these before. We've had some disputed elections. We just seem to be having them at higher frequency with the country split the way it is. Um, and uh, I could easily imagine a scenario in which the president made an argument that the election had not been fairly run. I mean, even for the last election, he didn't create a commission to look at Russian interference. He created a commission to find the three million votes he knew were for him that weren't cast there. Mm-hmm. That's right. He did. Well, we have time for a few questions from the audience. Yes, uh, we've got a hand in the very back there. Um, and someone's coming with a mic for you. Thank you, Liz. Yes, Mr. Sanger, could you please explain the relationship between the world of a cyber attack and what would precipitate a nuclear response? And then how is that response potentially affecting an organization like NATO if 25% of a European country is knocked out for electrical power and then millions of people die? What is the responsibility of the United States in that uh, episode? So you've raised a really fascinating question, and the opening page of uh, Perfect Weapon describes the new nuclear posture review, which came out under Jim Mattis's time. And for the first time, it posited the, the possibility that if the United States had a huge but non-nuclear attack launched on it that destroyed much of our infrastructure, which you'd pretty much have to imagine as a cyber attack, because if it's huge and non-nuclear, and did that much damage to infrastructure, hard to imagine another way to go do it, that we could have a nuclear response. It was an effort to try to build up some deterrence to cyber attacks, and I'm not sure it was an especially credible effort. I've talked to the people who wrote the language. They put it in there to sound new and different and create some deterrence. I'm not entirely sure they thought the whole thing through. But there is definitely a nexus between the cyber and digital world and our nuclear deterrent. The fact that the United States went in to mess with the test launches of North Korea and Iran's missile programs is fully understandable. 
But what happens when somebody comes in and tries to mess with our launch systems? Because what you want built into the launch system is such an understanding of reliability that you don't have to worry about reaching for that red button early because you fear that if you press it, nothing might happen, right? You want to build as much time into the system as you can, and that means having a fully reliable system that can't be interfered with. Now, the good news for all of you is that our nuclear systems are so old (laughs) and so pre-digital that they're actually hard to hack into. And, of course, they're isolated from the Internet. You laugh, but the other system that is so old and pre-digital is the air traffic control system. So think about that the next time you're lifting out of Rutland. Okay? Um, so, um, so part of the issue here is as we modernize our nuclear forces, we want to make sure that we do not get into a situation where we are introducing new vulnerabilities into the system by building a more modern command and control system. We need a more modern command and control system, but you want security first, and I think the people who are working on it are pretty aware of that. Um, Then the question comes, is nuclear a credible deterrent to using cyber? I'm having a hard time imagining any president of the United States using a nuclear weapon first in response to a cyber attack. But if it was an overwhelming attack, I think the pressure on them to do it might be there. Hmm. Do we have other questions? Oh, lots of questions. (laughs) Uh, Well, someone in the front, perhaps. Liz, can you? Yeah. I'm going to raise your hands again so we know who's... Who's, who's asking? We've had an interesting time this last few days uh, with the report of a whistleblower and what has transpired with respect to his effort. Could you comment on that? Well, first of all, we don't know what's a his. <laughs> um, we don't know who the whistleblower is. The president said yesterday that he didn't know who the whistleblower was, but that the whistleblower was clearly engaged in a partisan attack. (laughs) Interesting if we don't know who the whistleblower is. So what do we think this is about? Well, we think at least part of it is that this whistleblower probably saw a transcript of the conversation between the president and the new president of Ukraine. And the Wall Street Journal reported the other day, yesterday, that the transcript included at least eight separate efforts to get the new president of Ukraine to open up an investigation into actions by Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. Um, This whole report of an effort by the Bidens to oust the Uh, prosecutor in Ukraine in 2016 has been pretty thoroughly looked at. And what we know is that most NATO countries um, were seeking uh, the removal of this prosecutor because the prosecutor himself was considered corrupt. Um, But that apart, 
the suggestion is that the president may have been using the withholding of funds to Ukraine for military activity until they complied. He did not make that, according to what we've read so far, he did not make that an explicit condition. But remarkably, last week, just before the whole whistleblower story came up, the money to Ukraine magically got unfrozen. Um, I think it would be a fair assumption we've got a lot of people working on this subject right now. Uh, so I think you'll, you'll probably hear a lot more about it. I think there were a bunch of other questions back. Yes, there are lots, lots more questions. Um, I was just wondering, since China makes most of our computers, equipment and motherboards, I assume, we have in our personal computers, and I assume government computers, doesn't that open us up to more cyber attacks or viruses? And what would we be do, do um, about something like that? Um, well, the supply chain problem that you're describing is a big one, and one that people started dealing with in very simple ways, but is now being made much more complex by what I think is the most interesting national security issue out there, which is the arrival of 5G in every place except rural Vermont. Um, That's not true. We had a story about that. Yeah. What is that? That's not true. We had a story about that. You're going to get, you're going to get 5G. You're we have Huawei, uh, tra- you know, Transmitters down in Springfield. Oh, I'm sure yeah. you, I'm sure you do. And yeah. there are a lot of Huawei transmitters actually in a lot of rural parts of the, of the country. Right. And uh, they're not 5G transmitters because we don't have 5G yet. Right. Uh, but we'll get to that in a moment. So the U.S. government has already banned Lenovo computers, for example, which New York Times reporters use. So, you know, um, uh, including me. Um, <laughs> Uh, because they are, Lenovo was the old IBM personal computer division, but it's been, was taken over by a Chinese firm for a long time ago. Um, Huawei is largely banned from selling in the United States. And now there's a big battle underway about with the U.S. pressuring countries in Europe, Africa, Latin America to keep Huawei from taking over their networks. Um, this is a pretty complex issue. Because you could ban Huawei and still, as you suggest, buy your networks from Ericsson or Nokia, which are two of the major European competitors. We don't happen to have a big player in that territory. And you're going to discover that they've got a lot of Chinese chips. And by the way, if you're Xi Jinping, you've got a problem as well. Because one place where China has not been very strong is advanced semiconductors, And so the way that the U.S. government has threatened Huawei is by cutting off their access to our chips and as well to operating systems that are um, sold with Chinese phones. So most Huawei phones operate on Android. And Android, of course, is a Google origin operating system. So both sides can play this game. Why does 5G become a big issue for this? Because much as I would love to say that 5G is about making your phone faster, except if you live in those parts of Vermont, (laughs) where we're just happy to get reception at all. (laughs) In fact, 5G is not really about your phone. 5G is about the Internet of Things. It's about 
Internet of Things devices, of which there are now approaching 20 billion and rising fast, being able to talk to other Internet of Things devices and the cloud. And to make that work, in other words, to make factories or farms or whatever have incredibly up-to-date information, or an autonomous car, which you want going to the cloud to recognize that a street up two up to the left has been blocked off and that there's a fire three blocks up and you want to avoid that and so forth. To get all that data, you need to be moving this at incredible bandwidth. And so once 5G is fully in place, your, the country is going to run much more off of these networks and the networks will in itself inspire new applications, artificial intelligence applications and so forth, just as the invention of the iPhone created new applications. You know, you couldn't have had Uber until you had the iPhone, right? And the networks would run on it. So we need to think hard about who controls those networks. I worry about the Chinese having control of the switching systems, which are basically software-driven. I don't worry that much about the Chinese having the cell phone towers in Springfield because there's not a whole lot you can do with that the way you could use a switching system to either shut everything down or reroute data. So for now, I would put Springfield low on the national security crisis part of Huawei. But I would put where we put our switching systems pretty high. Thank you. Um, so I, I think we're out of time. And I, I want to thank David for squeezing us into his schedule. He is going off tonight to um, get back to New York for Face the Nation in the morning. Then he's you know, got a meeting with the foreign minister of Iran tomorrow afternoon. He's, he's really uh, made a tremendous, been very generous with his time. None so. of that would be anywhere near <laughs> as much fun as being in the Manchester Library. <laughs> <laughs>